This is the Art of Composing podcast with John Branningham, episode number nine, My Principles of Orchestration. Welcome to the Art of Composing podcast with me, John Brantingham, where you can learn to compose music. music. Hey everyone, we're back with another Art of Composing podcast episode. In this episode, we're going to learn about orchestration. What is it and why you should or shouldn't be doing it? We're also going to go over my technique for orchestrating small practice pieces that sharpen your orchestration skills. It's been a while, so let's get on to the featured content. Orchestration. The technique of composing for orchestra is something that everyone needs to eventually learn. But when you're just starting off, I liken it to treasure hunting on the beach. You walk around with a metal detector, aka your ear, looking for a chest of buried gold from 200 years ago. Turns out all you find are the occasional bottle cap, maybe a quarter, and a lot of wasted time. So my first question to you is, why are you orchestrating? Just like many of you, I attempted to orchestrate pieces of music when I was younger, and I still have those files on my computer. Guess what? They're pretty terrible. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be so hard on myself. I was 15 at the time, and I just wanted to copy what I heard from my favorite composers. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of desire. But just realize your first attempts to orchestrate anything, unless you happen to have a perfect memory and an absolutely phenomenal ability to transcribe, well, they're probably going to be bad. And I'm just going to say it, beginning composers generally shouldn't orchestrate, at least not in the way they think they should. Now, there are many reasons for this, and we'll talk about them in just a little while, but I think the main reason is because there's just a lot of stuff you need to know to orchestrate well. Certain things seem easier, especially with music notation software like Sibelius, but in reality, the art of orchestration is just as hard as it has ever been. You need to know range, characteristic instrumental sounds, some acoustics, common and uncommon playing techniques, how players read their music, proper notation practices, how to lay out your score, voicing techniques, and these are just the surface. So I thought in this episode I would go over what I think is kind of like a test you should give yourself before you get deep into orchestration, and then some suggestions for attacking the problem that is the orchestra. So the first thing to do is ask yourself, why do I need to orchestrate at all? All of us have our favorite composers, and I'm sure if you're like me, you've pictured yourself conducting your own masterpiece in front of a huge orchestra with a grateful audience behind you. Chances are, your pieces sound somewhat familiar, kind of like the ones your favorite composers have written. But the reality is, orchestras cost a lot of money, and there are fewer and fewer of them around. Now, I realize that everyone needs to be true to their art in the sense that you have to compose the sounds you hear in your mind, but to a certain extent, we still have to follow the rules that the world plays by, and one of those main rules is money. Now, if you're a relatively new composer, chances are you're the one that's going to have to organize your first concerts, not someone else, maybe with the exception of winning a competition or writing for your school orchestra or band. But you're probably not going to get a commission from the L.A. Phil or any other major orchestra unless you've already had some successes. But let's say, for argument's sake, maybe you you do have the money to hire an orchestra. When that moment comes, you want to be really sure, and I mean really sure, your music is good. Just recently, I finished recording a piece for 11 strings, horn, flute, and harp. And we had some limitations, because this is for the UCLA Film Scoring Program, And there were quite a few people in the class. 
so uh, who are also recording. So the piece could only be one minute and 20 seconds. That's not a very long piece at all. But I still spent a good two weeks composing, tweaking, checking instrument ranges, asking questions on Facebook groups, and so on. And I still felt nervous when the moment came. I didn't want all my classmates and my teacher and the players not to like the music. Now, unfortunately, due to the contract the music is recorded under, I can't play the recording on the podcast. But overall, it went very well. This size group is nothing to sneeze at, 14 players. But it's certainly not a hundred-piece orchestra. And I'm only now starting to realize just what that means when you set out to compose a major orchestral work. But there were a few things I had going for me coming into this orchestration experience that I think you need to think about before you attempt to orchestrate as well. First, this was the culmination project on a semester studying pretty much nothing but orchestration. So I was deep into Samuel Adler's book, as well as uh, some in Behind Bars, which is a book by Elaine Gould, uh, an excellent book on notation. I also have a lot of experience composing for much smaller groups and especially solo piano. So this leads to my next question. Are you able to compose effectively for one or two instruments? Have you written a bunch of music for solo instruments or solo uh, with piano? If not, that is where you need to start. You'll find overall the compositional problems are the same. Developing your music, writing transitions, building interest, tension, relaxation, suspense, and so on. But if you can't handle two staffs, how are you going to handle 16 or 20 or 30? Just the size of the staff paper alone means you're doing a lot more work than you otherwise would be, just drawing bar lines and key signatures, dynamics, articulations, and oh yeah, you have to write music as well. So writing solos for each instrument is also a great way to learn about those instruments separate from the problems of orchestration. For instance, if you're writing for brass and strings, balance can be a huge issue, especially if you have a small string section. The brass will easily overwhelm the strings. But do you know how hard it is to balance a solo trumpet? It's not. It's already balanced. You don't have to worry about who has the melody or how to double or what kind of texture to use. It's just you and the trumpet. This frees you to worry about the music and the playing characteristics of that solo instrument. From there, start to write accompanied pieces for each instrument. Hindemith actually wrote sonatas for each of the main orchestral instruments, and this is a great way to get comfortable with their capabilities. I have personally spent a lot of time writing just for piano and for a fair amount of solo instruments, and much of the music has not been fully engraved and published, but I still got the benefits from it. These kinds of exercise lead to another thing that I had going for me leading into this orchestration class, and that's a good grasp of form. See, form to me is a very important topic because it's basically how music manifests itself through time. It's the one inescapable thing in music. You can take away harmony, you can emancipate the dissonance, you can use noise, randomly generated sounds, or even no sound at all, like John Cage's 4 minutes and 33 seconds. But you can't escape time. Music happens over time. Even if the music is one beat at 300 beats per minute, it still happens over time. And form is the way we think about music over time. Now, this doesn't have to be classical form, although I think every composer should at least understand how classical form works. But just any system of logical form will help. Now, orchestration is inseparable from form. One of the key roles of orchestration is to clarify form. 
Now, traditionally, this meant to highlight different sections of the form with different orchestral textures and colors and techniques. But it may mean something different in, in different genres. If you're writing minimalist music, the form will mean something completely different uh, than classical. You may highlight the form by not making drastic changes in texture or color. Or, you know, contrast that with something like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, where the orchestration and how it changes is one of the key characteristics of the music. Now, the best way to get form under control is, once again, to compose for piano or other small ensembles first, really understanding how to develop form with the other tools at your disposal, like melody, harmony, rhythm, development, and so on. Once you can do that, then when you get to the orchestration part, you'll have at least an idea about how your form changes and how that will affect your orchestrational decisions. Now, let me say a quick quick word about orchestrating from a piano sketch or a piece versus composing straight to orchestra. I think there's a misconception going around that in order to be a legitimate orchestral composer, you need to compose your work straight to an orchestral setting. Now, part of the problem uh, are quotes like this from The Principles of Orchestration by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. He says, It is a great mistake to say, this composer scores well, or that composition is well orchestrated, for orchestration is part of the very soul of the work. Now, this would lead a young budding composer to think, oh man, if I don't conceive my piece as fully orchestrated, I'm not legit. But this is not really true. Everyone needs to start at the bottom. No one starts from the top. And Rimsky-Korsakov was one of the greatest orchestrators of all time, and so were his students. But he's talking about the pinnacle of orchestration, not the bottom. He knows this. This is why he wrote a book on the principles of orchestration. It's because people are not born knowing the comfortable range of the horn or how to balance out a small string section with a brass section. I think his point is that when you conceive of your music, you hear it as a specific kind of sound in your mind. You should, as you grow as a composer, strive to get as close to that sound as possible. If you hear a melody as a trumpet melody, then you should write it for trumpet. If it's for violin, then write it for violin. Great orchestrators can hear the different tonal colors in their mind before they write. They don't have to rely on programs like Sibelius or expensive orchestral sample libraries. But chances are you have not built up that skill yet to a comfortable level. I personally feel I am just starting to scratch the surface of being able to effectively hear a sound in my head and imagine what that will mean on paper. So I recommend starting from smaller sketches or piano music and orchestrating that. You can use other composers' works, which uh, you must obviously have the rights to, or you can use it if it's in the public domain, um, or you can use your own, whichever is preferable to you. One of the greatest examples of this kind of exercise is from Maurice Ravel. He took a series of compositions called Pictures at an Exhibition by Modest Mussorgsky, and he orchestrated them. The orchestration is outstanding, and the pieces are relatively short, self-contained compositional worlds. This means that you should study them. One of the hidden gems in this suite is the promenade, because Modest Mussorgsky basically took the same material and recomposed it several times throughout the suite, you can get a glimpse into creating contrast with both harmonic, melodic, and orchestrational means using the same material. Ravel took these pieces and created something really amazing from them, and you get the benefit of being able to listen to both the piano and the orchestral versions and also reading the scores. Now, my next question is less of a compositional one and more of a general requirement for a composer. Do you really understand how an orchestra works? 
Now, I think anyone who really wants to learn to orchestrate well should play in an orchestral setting at least for a while. Now, this doesn't have to be a professional symphony orchestra. It could be a wind band, a marching band, a chamber orchestra, even a big band. It's best to choose one that is aligned with the kind of music you want to write, but it's not completely necessary. I grew up playing in wind bands my whole life, with only occasionally uh, having this symphony orchestra experience. The most important things you learn in this environment is how real players play music. You get to hear the intonation problems, the stamina issues, balance issues. You get to see how beginners shudder in fear when the conductor calls them out, or how the guy that really practiced his part plays at about three dynamic markings too high because he wants everyone to know that he knows how to play it. You get to see what good parts look like and what bad parts look like. And most importantly, you learn how an ensemble really works together to create good music. You start to feel the form, the different colors, and the tonal interest created by the composer or arranger. Not to mention, you become intimately familiar with your own instrument. So I recommend getting online and finding a local community orchestra and trying it out. Um, If you don't play an instrument, pick one up, learn it, and join. There are plenty of groups out there, and if you can't find one close, look for one further away or try and maybe start your own. There are plenty of people around you that play instruments. You can also get a lot of great public domain music online through sites like IMSLP. A lot of the time, they even have the parts. But if they don't, a great exercise for any composer is to copy a score. You will learn a lot. So once you've asked yourself these questions, maybe you've decided that you still want to write for orchestra. Nothing can dissuade you. Well, that kind of drive is good, but it can also get you wrapped up in some unmanageable pieces of music. Go on any site Uh, that has new or young composers posting their music, and you'll see plenty of symphony number ones. And what you don't see are a lot of small study pieces. A symphony is, by nature, going to be difficult to write, because traditionally they're pretty long. Even in Mozart's day, you're writing 25 to 35 minutes of music, and that's a lot of music. Especially if you want the music to be good. What ends up happening is the beginner composers will write something halfway between film music and minimalism with a touch of something else in there. This way they can pick a simple four-chord four progression and repeat it a hundred times, call it modern minimalistic atonal tonality, and you have a symphony. Unfortunately, no one will probably listen to it, and they won't actually learn much from it. So to avoid this, I recommend another kind of composition, which is a compositional exercise Uh, in orchestration. So these are kind of like my steps to orchestrating and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through each step and I've already pre-composed this and orchestrated it and recorded it so you can hear what the end product is. So step one is to write a short piece of music something around 8 to 12 bars and basically this is your theme. You can write in any style you want but for this example I'm going to write in generally a tonal manner although it's kind of modern uh, modern type harmony. Now to start with, I recommend writing on paper with only chord symbols or Roman numerals. In this way you're focusing on the melodic line, which is after all what a single line instrument plays. So here you can listen to what I've written. Now this will just be the melody and the chords.
Now, it's not a very complicated piece, and that's kind of the point. It's relatively simple. The harmonies are, you know, clear, even though they're not really functional, and the melody is simple. So once we have a simple theme like this, what we're going to do is orchestrate that line in a general way. At this point, we're not worried about what instruments will play specific elements. We're just figuring out what elements to use in the first place. Now, this is when it helps to start naming things. One of my teachers is a big fan of giving names to different kinds of textures. For instance, a primary element, which is the main melody you hear, or a secondary element would be any supporting melody that goes with that primary element. A pad is a chordal element. You can also change that pad by making it a rhythmic pad, for instance. Now, I like to give names to a lot of things, but some of these are like inside jokes, and that would take too long to explain in the podcast all the different things that I've named. So just naming how you imagine it will help. For instance, we could start with uh, the first version of the theme, and let's say we want it to have a prominent solo primary element supported by a high sustained pad. Now, I want it to feel a little delicate. At this point, I generally like to switch to Sibelius, my notation software, and the main benefit of this is that I can copy and paste things quickly, as well as add some clean text and other symbols, which makes sketching it out you know, relatively easy. Now, that, that is the first version, and from here what I would do is I'll copy out that, that melodic line and those chords, and I'll create a second version, and I'll just have them in a row. And what ends up happening is we string to together a complete piece. It's just one melody copied a couple times, so you're not worried about how does this piece develop. Remember, it's just a short practice piece, but it gets you writing some music, thinking about the chords, thinking about the form, and orchestrating it. Now let's go ahead and listen to a piano version of this sketch of the first uh, version of the, um, the theme. Now maybe in the second version, I want the primary element to drop down an octave and become stronger and louder, meaning I'll probably double it. I also want the pad to become a rhythmic pad. I want the bass instruments to come in and add some gravitas to the piece, and then finally I want to add a secondary element to counter that primary element. Now hopefully you can see what we're doing here. We're arranging the piece using words and descriptions. This means that we're making decisions beforehand. I like to say often that composing is about making decisions. Every note you write, you're making a decision. And it helps to split those decisions up and make them at different times. If you start with a blank score of 20 instruments, then you're making a lot of decisions all at once. And notice I haven't even said what instruments or how many I'm using. It's very general at this point. So let's listen to what this second version sounds like. Now, it's a little bit more active, although I understand it's kind of difficult to hear all the different elements working together. Um, if you want to see these sketches, they're all on my website. Just go to artofcomposing.com slash episode 9. No spaces, no zeros or anything, just episode 9. Um, now, let's move on to the final or the third version. Uh, I'm going to have a much more regal feel with this one, somewhat reflecting that this is the end of my piece. 
And I want it to be homophonic with uh, the primary element supported by a chorale-type movement underneath using the same rhythm. The secondary element uh, probably won't poke its head out anywhere. And uh, there's no rhythmic pad, and um, there's some melodic fills, some trills, things like that. So, uh, So let's go ahead and listen to what this sounds like with the piano. Okay, so the way I sketched this out was using a five-line sketch system, and this consists of the primary element, the secondary element, the pad, the melodic fills, and the bass. And I just add this under the actual, uh, you know, uh, initial melody and chord. So it actually looks like six staffs, but but I'm sketching on five lines. And each staff has a role. So when your eyes scroll the page, you'll start to see quickly what each element means in your orchestration. Um, you can also sketch on a grand staff or piano staff if you want. It's kind of up to you, and you'll start to develop your own personal style as you continue on. I like this five-staff method because it's predictable. You could also, let's say you're composing for film and you're under a very short uh, time crunch, you could always hand this to an orchestrator. And if the orchestrator knows how you work, they're going to be able to work very efficiently pulling out the orchestration from your sketch. Now that we have our sketches, it's a matter of choosing the instruments that best fit. At this point, I won't go deep into why I'm choosing what I am for this, because there's a lot that goes into it. I'm generally thinking of the colors of each instrument and how they work together as ensembles and pairs, and how they should be voiced as sections, and what kind of roles are characteristic for each of those instruments. For instance, it's very characteristic for the strings to play a rhythmic pad as a section, as well as the brass section. But it's less characteristic for the tuba and the piccolo and the viola to play a rhythmic pad as a section together. Maybe it'll work, and these kinds of short pieces are a great place to experiment, but it's good to get what works under your fingers first and then experiment from there. Note that I also wrote short transitions between the different sections that kind of, there. I didn't add extra bars in this case. You can add extra bars if you want. But um, it's, it's transitioning from small to big and big to small in different colors um, because you can have huge differences in sound between one section to another, and uh, you don't want it to be too striking. Well, maybe you do sometimes, but nonetheless, you want to have control over those transitions. So let's listen to the fully orchestrated version. basically does it. Now, I don't consider myself a master of orchestration yet, but I do have some practical experience with it, and doing these kinds of exercises, which are short and targeted, will really help you in gaining the experience needed to write for a real orchestra. 
it will also be much easier to take a 30-second piece or a one-minute piece and get it read by a local orchestra than it would taking a 30-minute piece. Orchestrating is a wonderful art, but like anything else, you need to be ready for it and willing to put in the hard work in order to succeed. So let's go over what we learned in this episode. A great definition of orchestration is the arrangement of a musical composition for performance by an orchestra. Key to this definition is that you're arranging a composition and that it will actually be performed. The questions you should ask yourself before attempting to learn orchestration are, why do I need to orchestrate at all? Am I doing it because the music needs to be orchestrated or because everyone else on the internet seems to be doing it too? Am I able to compose effectively for one or two instruments? If you can't handle one instrument, how will you handle 10 or 20? Or do I really understand how an orchestra works? Have you spent time listening to real orchestras play and practice? Even better, have you played in one yourself? The experience is invaluable for a composer. Once you've asked these questions and you still want to compose a piece for orchestra, here are my steps for orchestration. Step one, write a short piece of music, something around 8 to 12 bars, and write this as a single melody with chords. Step two, we take that theme and we orchestrate several versions of it in a general way. We do this not by writing the music first, but by describing it with elements like primary elements, secondary elements, pads, bass lines, and melodic fills. Step three, we sketch out these descriptions in a standardized way. I like to use a five-line sketch system with the primary element, secondary element, pad, bass, and melodic fills each on their own line. It also can help to add a separate percussion line if you have percussion. You could do this on a grand staff if you want, whatever works best for you. And step four, orchestrate each version. You'll also want to write short transitions between the sections so the change in texture is not too abrupt or striking. And you can, you, you can do these transitions after the fact, so you can orchestrate the sections first and then write the transitions between them. Thanks again for listening to the Art of Composing podcast. If you like the podcast, leave a five-star review in iTunes. You can find the show notes for this episode at artofcomposing.com slash episode nine, all one word. Also, if you're interested in starting your journey towards becoming a composer, head on over to artofcomposing.com slash start. Watch the video and then sign up for the free composing course. It's an eight-video course with exercises and worksheets, and it's designed to get you up and running quickly by composing your first classical piece. So until next time, live long and prosper.